Who's hungry for the word today? Okay, that's about three. Uh, no, I'm so excited um, about the message this morning. I'm, I'm just excited about the word of God. And I'm, that it, I mentioned before that it's timeless, right? And what we're going to do today is we're going to go to a story. This is crazy, right? Like, think about this for just a second. We're going to go to a story that took place 3,000 years ago. And we're going to see all of the direct implications and relevancy to the things that happen in this story to the time we live in right now. That's what the Bible is. That's what the Bible can do, is it can open up a way. It can bring forth life for us to know how to live and navigate everything we're going through right now in this time. And it's the scriptures that have been inspired by the Holy Spirit himself to men thousands of years ago. And I love that. Of no other book can that be said. You realize that, right? I mean, the Bible is, listen, listen, the Bible is the word of God. Jesus said that the words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The word spirit is pneuma in the Greek. It means to breathe. It means breath. It means to blow. And so, listen, think about this. When we hear the word of God, when we read the word of God, God is breathing it's a living word. It's not dead. It's not text. It's a living word. God's spirit is the life of God is in the words that are being spoken. And so whenever we read the word of God or hear the word of God, God is breathing. We are inhaling and receiving his breath. And when we receive the life of God, we can breathe it back out because we've breathed it in. Isn't that powerful? Word of God is just amazing. And so we're going to look at a story 3,000 years ago. It takes place in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 16, 17, and 18, and a little bit of 19. Um, and it's a story about several characters. So if this is like a highlight reel or an opening to a movie, we'd say, starring uh, Ahab, Jezebel. Jezebel, yeah, everybody's like, ooh, Jezebel, we're going there today, okay, that wicked Jezebel, Jezebel, you like that, yeah. Elijah, and then the hero of our story is God, he's always the hero of our story, he's the hero of your story, he's the hero of my story, right, and so let me tell you a little bit about these characters before we read some of the text, um, and the purpose of my, of my message today, let me maybe say that first, where we're going, the purpose of my message today is to challenge you. I'm just telling you that up front. It's to challenge you as a believer of Christ and where your conviction and your faith stands. Because I think that we're in a time today in our land, in our world, where we have a lot of people in the church who are more of what I would consider to be like a covert Christian they're kind of secret agents. They would say they love God, and they do, but when it comes to the way that they live outwardly, uh, there's no evidence, there's no sign. In fact, there's actually a lot of times intentional effort by people not even to associate themselves with Jesus or to be known that they're a Jesus follower because that brings certain implications. They may be embarrassed. People may make fun of them. People may, you know, contradict them. And so people just all of a sudden 
now are avoiding this confrontation altogether, avoiding this situation altogether. It's almost like I'd rather just be laying back in the shadows than to be out in the light and be known as a follower of Christ. Now listen, when you read the Bible and you see what it means to follow Jesus, to sign up, you got to know that you never signed up to be in the shadows. You never signed up to sit on the sidelines. A follower of Christ will always be called to go to the front lines and meet opposition head on. That's why we're soldiers in an army and everyone has enlisted in that. Nobody sits back and doesn't participate. And so we got to know that. But look, here, also in the same time, I'm going to be talking about conviction and standing up for your faith. In fact, the title of my message today is Take a Stand. But at the same time, let's just agree right up front. Let's just bathe this whole message and package this whole message in this truth. That when we stand up for our faith and we are a person of conviction and principle, it doesn't mean that we are a person who shakes our finger at people and beats people over the head with the Bible and condemns people. I mean, it's real clear that that is not the way of Christ. We're to do it in love and with compassion. We're to be non-judgmental. So we know that. Anytime we get into those things, we, we are erring <laughs> and we are off track. But nonetheless, there is no indication that a follower of Christ is supposed to lay back, sit back, lurk in the shadows, and not be known, to be afraid or embarrassed or ashamed of their association with the King of Kings. You know, we had this situation recently. Katie and I went to a, a conference, and we were traveling. We had to fly there, so we were in the airport, and my youngest daughter um, I have six kids and five daughters, and the youngest daughter, Liza, she just had a birthday. I know this guy's like, whoa. <laughs> See, I think on that for a minute. Um, uh, uh, and so our youngest daughter, Liza, she just had a birthday, and she, she loves unicorns right now. And so she got this, like, suitcase uh, that's decked out with unicorns, and it's pink, and it's purple, and it's got, like, unicorn little danglies hanging off, little figures and stuff, you know. And it's just as cute as can be. And so we're getting ready to go. And she's like, Mom, Dad, like, I want you guys, I want you to use my unicorn suitcase. I want you to use my, my suitcase. Like, look, Daddy, come here. And it's just so precious, right? Like, look, let me show you how it works, you know. Like, I've done this before. Never mind. Yeah, just show me how it works. And so she's like, look, you know, the handle comes up. And, and here's the zippers. And here's the unicorn. And oh, I, can get, I see the unicorn. It's there. Oh, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm just being, like, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, like, I'm a dude, and I'm going to be dragging this thing through the airport. You know, I'm just like, ugh. But then I'm sitting here, and I'm like, look at her heart. Like, she, she, she wants to be, she wants to be associated with me, and she wants me to be associated with her. And I'm just like, yeah, baby, that's great. Let's, I'll take the suitcase. <laughs> Lord, the things that you ask of me. Uh, and so, you know, we're going through the airport. And, of course, the, the handle's too short. So I'm like, I got to carry it like this. And it's just, I mean, it just hits everything. And it's not running smooth. And the, dang, the dangly's dangling. And it's <laughs> making noise and chiming and everything else. And, you know, so I'm sitting there. And I'm just <laughs> waiting to board. And I'm, people are like, You know, and the people behind me like, and then, uh, you know, and then this one guy says, he's like, uh, it takes a real man to carry a suitcase like that. I said, that's what I am. I am. I, I knew that too. 
I'm just glad you knew that, that you see that I saw that. Okay. My point is, guys, look, Jesus has saved our lives. Like, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. A day will come where every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. Unbelievers and believers alike. He's the one. He is what it's all about. Why in the world will we ever, ever feel like there is any shame or embarrassment and be associated with the one who rules over all of the universe, who saved our souls? And he's saying, look, I want you to be close to me and so close to me that your life honors me outwardly, that it's a reflection of your relationship with me and it should be anything but hidden or quiet or tucked away where no one can see. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let me say this. In this story, we're going to see something that happened to the nation of Israel that I believe with all my heart. I'm just saying this to you. You just think about this and you pray you receive this or not. But I believe... That what happened in this story 3,000 years ago, the spirit, the evil spirit that was on Jezebel is a spirit that's actually attacking our nation today. And I want to show you how I think that. Let me tell you a little bit about, first of all, Ahab. Ahab, it says in the Bible, it says that he is the king over Israel and that when he came along, he had done more evil in the sight of the Lord than all who were before him. This is really interesting. If you back up a few more verses, it talks about his father, Omri. And it says, before Ahab, Omri did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all who were before him. So what do we have? We have two successive generations that evil has just compounded, has intensified in the nation of God's people. Now, when you study the scriptures that you can see that when one generation turns from the Lord and rebels against him. The Lord will be merciful. He will send prophets. He will give them an opportunity to repent and he will allow them to see the wickedness of their ways. When two generations successively go further into sin and idolatry and away from the Lord, then eventually the Lord will bring judgment and it will be impending because it's the only thing that can get them because they're so far gone to see and come back around to being a people who follow him. And so that's what we have. We have Ahab, who is now doing more evil in the sight of the Lord than his father, Omri. And Omri did the same before him. And now we have this character, Jezebel. Now, Jezebel is the daughter of a king named Abal. What kind of name is that, right? I mean, eight ball, cue ball, nine, what are you? Like, Abal, like, anyway, the name means Baal is alive. Now, you got to know this. Baal is was a God to the Philistine people, and he was actually a God that goes all the way back to the Canaanite times in the beginning, early days, okay? And he represents a king who's under, or a God, an idol who's under the direct manipulation influence of Satan himself. Baal worshipers were idol worshipers, and they considered Baal to be the God of fertility, and they, and they worshiped him, and the the people who worship Baal were constantly enticing the people of Israel to, to be led away, they call seductresses, to be led away from God and to worship Baal, to idolatry. And they pulled them away in their loyalty of their heart. And so Abal is a king of a region called Sidon, Sidonians. 
It's in the northern region above Israel along the Mediterranean coast. And there's another city right next to it called Tyre, T-Y-R-E. Sidon and Tyre was a region, they were eventually conquered together, a region known as Phoenicia, okay? Why that's important, because in Ezekiel, I'm trying to paint a picture of the spiritual implications of this. In Ezekiel chapter 28, he prophesies about the impending destruction of the king of Tyre. I don't have time to get into this deep, but I want to tell you this, that most scholars believe, and I believe, that this picture of the king of Tyre is a direct picture of Satan himself, the way it describes the king of Tyre. What's the point of all that? The point is there is a satanic, powerful influence over this region, and the purpose of Satan's power and his intention is to pull the people away from God and to begin to worship him, to pull their loyalties away from the Lord and begin to worship him. Same thing happened in the garden, right? Pull them away. And so the king of uh, the Sidonians, Abel, has a daughter who's named Jezebel. So she's a princess. Obviously, he's king. She's the daughter. She's a princess. She's the princess of the Sidonians, this region of Baal worshipers. The Bible says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. A principality is a region, a, a, an area, and it's a region and an area that is ruled by a prince or by a ruler. There are evil spirits that rule over regions. We know that from the book of Daniel. It talks about the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. These things are real. And so Jezebel isn't just Jezebel, this woman. She's Jezebel, the princess of Sidon, who is under the direct influence and manipulation of Satan. Now watch what she does, okay? Ahab, king of Israel, God's people, he marries Jezebel. He welcomes a princess from a foreign land into his own homeland and gives her a place of authority and way to rule over God's people. She is promoted from princess to queen. And her power and her influence to oppress and bind up and attack the people of God has now just intensified and strengthened. Why? Because Ahab welcomed her in. You see, the Lord or the enemy, Satan, cannot go into an area and begin to set up rule in a place where he has not been given, where we haven't relinquished that rule to him. But if we relinquish it to him, he will move right in and he will set up camp and he will begin to build fortresses and strongholds little by little listen to what Jezebel did this is crazy she began one by one by one to tear down the altars for worship of God that had been set up in the land and the, and began to execute the prophets of Israel one by one little by little gradually over time so much so that we get to the point where we're in the story where we're entering in today where there's actually 850 prophets now of Baal that have been instituted and put into office. And the prophets of God that have been around for, the, for all of these years are, are being executed and there's only a, a number of them left and they're being hidden in caves to hide out because of fear that they're going to be executed 
by Jezebel. So here is what the spirit of Jezebel is doing. And this is what I'm suggesting to you is a direct attack that we see in our nation today. The spirit of Jezebel is attempting and was doing so to run the name of God and the worship of God right out of the land that had been founded upon the word of God. Was running any evidence, any worship, any declaration, that's what the altars represented, of God, the true God, out of society and, imp- and at the same time replacing that with false prophets and false worship and idols. Took away the real thing and gave the fake thing. And let me ask you a question. Think about altars. Things like Jacob set up altars Abraham set up altars. They did this when they had encounters with God. God would do something substantial in a place. They would name the place and they would set up an altar and they would consecrate it to the Lord. And they would say, look, whatever happens in this land, whatever happens, God does, is happening on top of the foundation that God has established here. So there's an altar that's an altar of worship for him from this point on. And she tore those altars down to remove the sign and the evidence that God was ever here to begin with. Now think about this. In one generation, you tear it down and people see that. And if they permit that, it keeps happening. In a second generation, they never even remember it was there. He's trying to extinguish it right out of society. And so uh, we see this, we see this uh, picture of these altars and she's tearing them all down. And then here you have Elijah that comes along. Now Elijah is a prophet of God. And I love this guy because, you know, he makes a stand, takes a stand for God in a time where there's violent opposition and if nobody stops Jezebel, God's going to be, there's going to be no sign of God left in a couple of generations from now and the land that was for his chosen people, is, they're not even going to remember that it, what it was even all about. And, and Elijah is going to make a stand and he's a prophet that's called by God to go and declare God's word and to suggest that the people need to turn away from this idol worship. Now why I love Elijah is because he's just a normal dude. Like, he's just a dude with real problems like you and me. In fact, there's one scene where it talks about Elijah, and it says that he was so distraught that he wanted to die. Maybe commit suicide. I don't know. It was like despair he was in, and he's like praying, Lord, take my life. Probably thinking about taking his own life. Like, he, he was in this moment where he was in, that's where he was going through. And so he had a lot of the same kind of problems that people have. But he was also willing to stand up, make a stand, at a time where nobody else was willing to do that. And this is crazy because in the book of Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, it said that when false prophets would arise, they were to be put to death. They were to be killed. Somehow, along the way, there's 850 of them running around. And the real ones are nowhere to be seen. So let me ask you a question. How did we get here? How did we get here? One torn down altar at a time. An indifference by the people who could have did something about it. Think about this. Altars, removal. Where's God in our schools? Where's God in government? Where's God in the pledge? Do you see this? 
The enemy is under, I mean, his tactics are no different. His schemes are no different. He is trying to extinguish the name of God, the evidence of this nation being founded on God. He's trying to run that out of our society. And folks, listen, here's my heart today. If we as Christians who have the right and authority to stand up and do something about it, don't. If we become indifferent, will we not find ourselves in a place one, two generations from now where there's 850 Baal-worshipping prophets running around and the church of God is nowhere to be seen, is silent and hidden in society? We have to make a stand. Our faith, our conviction has to rise up and meet the opposition head on in moments and in times like these. And that is exactly the picture of what we see Elijah brings to the table. So Elijah goes to Ahab and he risks his life. He says, there's going to be a drought. Judgment has come. There's going to be a drought. We need to You've done wrong in the sight of the Lord. Now, you've got to realize that for Elijah, going to the king, who's already massacring people, and saying, you screwed up, dude, and bad things are coming. If the king didn't like his message, off with his head. So he, he's already risking his life to make a stand for what the word that God has put in his heart. And we sometimes worry about what people might think of us, how we might look, what they might say on Facebook. You know, like, I'm a Christian. Oh, no. Like, we, look, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. Peter said, be ready in all seasons to give a defense for your faith. Come on, it's there. You see it. We better be ready. We're going to have to stand. Not sit, stand against whatever evil in our day, in any season, in any era of time is coming at us. It's the only thing that's going to stand against it is God's people. And so Elijah says, there's, there's a drought and it's coming. And Ahab's like, he doesn't like it. And then the Lord sends Elijah away into the wilderness. This drought lasts three and a half years. Now, think about this. The land that they're in is a land of blessing it's a land that's supposed to be filled with milk and honey right this is God's chosen the promised land to his chosen people it's a rich prosperous land when the blessing in the hand of God is on it it flows with prosperity but when they go through successive generations of turning away from the Lord and then a drought comes, the grace and the blessing of God begins to lift. And now all of a sudden, a land that, is bare, that was meant to be prosperous is barren, unfruitful, dry, parched, and people are dying of starvation. They can't even eat. They can't even grow anything. The hand of God has been lifted from the nation. The blessing and the covering has now been taken off, and they are they have willingly stepped into a place now of judgment and of consequences that have come to them as a result of them turning away from the Lord, of allowing God to be ran out of their society. Now, here's what's even crazier about this. Baal, who they're worshiping, is supposed to be the God of fertility. Where is he? You know, I mean, it's dry, it's barren. Three and a half years, it's no rain. And he's the God of fertility. Like, you'd think people would be like... Yeah, something's not making sense here, you know? I don't, like, I'm just not connecting these dots. This isn't working. It's the God of fertility, and, and it's dry, and it's barren, because the Lord is always in control. 
He is all, his, his rule, his reign is never threatened. No matter what you see happening in our world, no matter how much you think this is why is this, why is that, I promise you, God is uncontested in his reign. He is never off of his throne and he is never not in control. We don't understand it all, but that doesn't change the fact that he is supreme and that he is preeminent and that he is omnipotent. And so the hand of God is lifted in this and, and the drought comes upon the land. And so Elijah goes into the wilderness and after three and a half years, God sends him back. He says, okay, now it's time to go back and confront Jezebel, Ahab, and this wickedness. And so Elijah comes back, and one of the prophets, this is funny, but one of the prophets, his name is Obadiah, and he was one of the guys hiding the other prophets and keeping them in caves. And Ahab his, and Jezebel had been hunting Elijah. They're trying to find him and kill him. And, uh, and, so, and so Elijah comes to Obadiah and he says, hey, bro, uh, go tell, Eli yeah, he said, bro, I know, <laughs> that's Hebrew. Anyway, so he said, go tell Abru, Abru, e sorry, Ahab, go tell Ahab that I'm back. And Obadiah's like, oh, like, okay, yo, bro, let's hold on just a sec. Uh, here's the deal. They're trying to find you and kill you. Um, last time you did this, like you disappeared on us. Uh, yeah, and if I go to Ahab and I tell him you're here, like you do one of those disappearing acts again, bro. Like my head's coming off and I'm dead. So uh, let's not do that. And Elijah says, no, 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 no. Listen, I'm gonna show myself. I'm gonna, I'm gonna confront Ahab, tell him I'm here. So Obadiah goes, we don't have to put that up there. So Obadiah, Obadiah goes uh, to tel Ahab that Elijah's back. And, Eli and Ahab comes running out. And of course, the first thing he does is start blaming Elijah. Where have you been, you persecutor of Israel? You know, he says, it's all your fault. It's this rain and this drought and everything else. And Elijah's like, it ain't my fault, it's your fault. And they do the blame game thing, you know. And uh, finally, Elijah's like, you know what? Forget about all that nonsense, never mind. Here's what we're gonna do. You go get all 850 of your prophets and you bring them up to Mount Carmel and we're gonna have a standoff because I'm taking a stand. And there's one guy, Elijah, and 850 prophets of Baal. Again, how did we get here? <laughs> how did we get to this place? He's outnumbered. Safe to say, if God doesn't show up, Elijah is going down. But Elijah says, I'm willing to put it all on the line. I'm willing to risk my life for the name of God because something is going to have to change here. And God's name needs to be made famous in these parts again. You know, one of the stories I've loved for years and just a tragic situation that something beautiful really came out of. But you remember in the late 90s when there was that horrible shooting in Columbine in the schools in Colorado and there was this girl named Cassie Bernal and it was witnesses on the scene. This story's held true for years and years. There's Cassie Bernal, and she was faced head to head, face to face with the gunman. And he said, do you believe in Jesus? People that were there that survived, they heard this. She said, yes, I do. And he shot her and he killed her. She stood on the end of a barrel and refused to denounce Christ as her Lord and Savior. Refused. She's in the presence of the Lord right now. Praise God. I know that. I believe that with all my heart. But this is the point. 
There's evil in our society. There is evil in our world. And we have to be willing to risk and stand firm against that. There's an old quote that says, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. I mean, we have the, the, the best the most good in us that there ever could be, the Spirit of God. Like, we need to rise up and do something. And so Elijah says, let's do this. We're going to go up on the mountain, and we're going to make altars, and we're going to prepare sacrifices. And you're going to have a bull, and I'm going to have a bull. You're 850 prophets. You're going to have a bull on an altar, and then I'm going to have my bull on my altar. And then you're going to pray to Baal, and if Baal is real, then fire will come down out of heaven and will consume their sacrifice on their altar. But if he's not real, and I'm gonna pray to my God, the God of Israel, and a fire comes down out of heaven then, then all will know there's one God in Israel, one true God. And so they're like, okay, sounds good, let's do it. Now, look, that tells me something. The enemy is up for a fight too. I mean, they, they didn't back away, they were ready. The enemy is up for a fight. But Elijah knows that this thing's going to turn out differently because he's making a stand for God. It's pure, it's genuine, and he's ready to die for the name of the Lord if need be. So they go up on there in Mount Carmel, awesome place. When we were in Israel, we drove by and saw the mountain where this all supposedly took place and just very breathtaking sight. And they're up on this mountain. And so the prophets of Baal begin to do their thing. You know, they're praying, worshiping, crying out to Baal, God of fertility, come, do all of this, noon rolls around, midday, nothing happens. And then Elijah comes over around midday. He's like, hey, where's Baal? Is he sleeping? Is he meditating? Where is he? I mean, he uses sarcasm. So I'm just saying, babe, it's biblical. God permits it. It's right there. No, I, I don't know that for sure. Just He did use sarcasm. She gets on me about that, but anyway. Uh, She's like, where is he? Where's Baal? What's going on? He's not here. And they're like, ah, and they start cutting themselves and bleeding and doing satanic things, satanic things to themselves to try to conjure up something from this false god. Nothing happens. So Elijah says, okay, my turn. And he comes up to the altar. Now listen, this is such a huge, maybe the most important part of the story for today. When Elijah comes up to, to do his sacrifice he does not build a new altar listen he repairs and rebuilds an old altar that had been torn down well one that had previously been established you see they were not foreigners to the things of god they were a people who had seen miracles. They were a people who had seen the name of God do mighty things in their land. There was an altar established that had been torn down and they had forgot where they came from. And Elijah reinstates, reestablishes this altar that had been torn down before he brings his sacrifice up. Think about this. What would happen if God reentered our schools? If God re-entered our government, if God re-entered every part of our society and reclaimed the foundation of which we were founded upon, what would possibly change? And he says, I'm not going to start building a new altar. I'm going to repair an altar that Jezebel had already torn down. And then he takes 12 stones, interesting, to represent the 12 tribes 
and he uses 12 stones for the altar, it symbolizes unity. They had become a people divided. They had become a people that the spirit of Jezebel had been able to fracture and splinter and divide, and they were in a weakened state because of it. And he's saying, look, we're going to put these 12, we are, no matter what it looks like, we are a people united. Can I suggest something to you? We are all united in Christ. We are one body with one head, and we are different members. There is unity in the body, and we need to stand for one another. We need to, be ha- to have conviction and to be able to stand and fight with one another and brothers and sisters when we're under attack as well. So he sets up this altar that was torn down. He reestablishes it, 12 stones, unity, a people not divided but unified. And he puts the altar up and he begins to pray. And I love his heart. He said, God, I pray that you send fire. And say, so I can be right, they can be wrong. Does it say so? He says, I pray that you send fire, that the people may turn their hearts back to you. He's all about repentance. He's all about God being made famous. And guess what happens? I'm sure you know. (sighs) Supernaturally, the heavens open and fire comes down out of the sky and consumes the sacrifice and the entire altar. It says that when Elijah was setting it up, that he had the servants go. They filled four pots of water three times and dumped it all over the altar. It says the wood was soaked, and it says there was water in the trench around the altar. It couldn't be lit. No matches were going to work. And the fire God comes in, dries up the trench, and consumes the sacrifice, and all begin to turn and worship God in an instant because one man took a stand he was severely outnumbered there had been years of attack and movement against God and in one moment when one man took a stand the entire nation pivoted back and began to follow God hallelujah you think your testimony and your conviction can't move heaven and earth to see things happen I'm telling you right now if we can't take a stand folks I don't know what else is going to help we need the people of God to be strong in our time to recognize that there is evil lurking and that we are willing to stand against that and Elijah goes after it's done says they brought all 850 prophets down the mountain and executed every single one of them executed everyone what should have been done years before meaning don't let this evil raise its head and grow and multiply cut it off as soon as it starts to begin to get power what should have been done years ago had compounded and intensified and was assaulting the nation and they uprooted everything at one moment and then it says that whenever that happened elijah went to ahab and he says you know he says get ready for rain and all of a sudden he begins to pray And guess what happens? The heavens open back up and the land begins to get soaked and saturated with the rain of heaven and the land begins to flow with milk and honey and prosperity, the blessings that God had promised them all along because they turned their heart back to him and now the covering is upon the nation. I believe, I just believe that we will see a day well, we will reclaim what this nation was founded upon and was all about. If, if God is the center of our land, then the blessings of God will abound and will be rich and prosperous in all that we see. And just like in this story, whenever he comes down, 
and tells Ahab. And the rain, all of what God had promised all along that had been stifled and that had been lifted because of their turning away is now being released back over their society. And they are a people seeking after God's own heart once again. And that, folks, is where we've got to get it. We, you, I, each one of us, one person, one individual, we have a testimony. We have a testimony of what God has done in our lives. We, have a con- we, we need to be convicted and strong and firm and not be embarrassed or afraid to be associated with God and with Jesus and to let people know, like I was just pointing this out in the first service, like Alex over here, so fitting. We had baptisms today. And then she wore this shirt today. Would you mind? I know I asked you this, but stand up. Just look at this shirt. Like, I mean, I just, I'm just like, this is just awesome, you know? A people who are not afraid to stand up for what we believe in a loving, compassionate way, not in a judgmental way, but yet in a firm way nonetheless where there's resolve and conviction and we will not be moved we will not waver amen i'll close with this thought and i'll have the team come back up one last time think about this for just a second the bible says that we as the church are the bride of christ sons and daughters of of god the church we are the bride of christ and he is our groom now think about if you knew a woman who got engaged to a man, she's got her engagement ring on, and she's betrothed to him, she's promised to him. And she's going around, and people start coming up to her, and say some guy comes up and says, hey, I know you're promised, but I don't, come with me. I'm gonna lure you away. Come with me, and not the one that has your heart. In fact, take that ring off. And get rid of it. Don't show any sign to anyone that you're engaged anymore. Be ashamed of that. You need, to, you need to just let go of all that. You think, what? No, no. We're the bride of Christ. We are betrothed to Him. He is coming again one day to sanctify that relationship of marriage, that union for all of eternity. It's powerful truth, folks, but it's beyond my understanding, really. That's what the Bible says. We're the bride of Christ and that he's going to reunite in marriage with us and that will be for all of eternity. So we are betrothed. Here's the point of that. If we are betrothed, let's wear that ring proud. Let's wear it proud and let's not play the field. Let's not act like there's other options. Let's make it real clear that we belong to one, and we're okay letting the world know that. Amen.